today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It's a new tell-all book that Patrick Brown has uh, released uh, after his ouster from the Conservative Party and, of course, now is uh, the mayor of Brampton. And uh, he has some things listed in there, which uh, is, sure to ra- is sure to raise some eyebrows. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and he is with us now. Michael, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So this has been quite a year for Patrick Brown. Uh, why the book? Well, I mean, that's really a question you have to ask him. I, I, I think a lot of it is obviously due to the fact that he felt very hurt, disgusted, betrayed, and a variety of other emotions after everything that happened that caused him to step down from the leadership of the Ontario PCs back in uh, January. And for that reason, I think that he basically immersed himself in this book, or at least that was the indication we were given to various interviews he did with news outlets, including the CBC and also Your Global News. So... I think we knew this, you know, I think we knew it was going to be pretty tough. It had been announced by his publisher that it was going to be a very strongly worded tell-all book and something that was obviously worth reading overall. The clips that we've seen uh, so far, and I don't have a copy of the book like most people, but it's on order, so it's coming, and I'll Hmm. see it a bit more closely soon. But it's pretty, as I said yesterday, or last night, it's downright ugly, some of the language. I think there's no question of that. Uh, Why now? Um, Obviously, uh, the PCs are in power. At what point do you draw the line between taking one from the team and uh, looking after your own reputation? Obviously, the PCs can't be happy about this. Well, why now, which is the first part, uh, in fairness, I, I don't know if Patrick Brown really knew what his next step in politics was going to be. Remember, when he wrote the book, it was a few months after he had been removed as Ontario PC leader. Mm -hmm. He obviously had not decided that time whether he was going to run for the commissioner of the Peel region, which was later then eliminated. So then he ran for the mayor of Brampton position, which he ultimately won. So this book has been in the planning stages for many months and long before he won another election. So... Why now? I think this was just basically part of his plan, and he decided not to pull the plug, even though he became the new mayor of Brampton, and I guess he decided to move forward with it. But in terms of the way the Ontario PCs are looking at it, I think there's a number of different ways. Number one, they don't really regard Mr. Brown as part of their team whatsoever. So, again, it's an outside voice speaking. Number two, I think all the various antics, machinations, whatever you wish to call them, was really enough for the Ontario PCs to deal with that they didn't need an episode like this, although they knew the book was coming. And I think most of them presumed, Scott, that it was going to be pretty nasty overall in tone and tenor based on the very, very small clips and lines we had seen, or just basically based on the interviews that Mr. Brown had where it looked like he was going to be pretty firm and sort of go after the people that he blames for his political downfall, the Ontario PCs. And thirdly... um, you know, the, the some of the clips that have come out, and I don't know if you've run it yet on CHML or elsewhere, but it's pretty nasty. I mean, you know, allegations about Vic Fideli, about, you know, sexual impropriety, which was a story that was floating months ago that most of us have discredited. But again, I have to see the language that's used in the book before I can describe it properly. And also the commentary about Lisa McLeod, who's been a longstanding Ontario PC MPP, is now a cabinet minister for Premier Doug Ford, 
and they, you know, Mr. Brown sort of makes an allegation from what I understand in the news reports. And again, I have to look at the book for the language that apparently she tried to fake her mental illness that she declared a number of months ago. Hmm. Or if, if it isn't Mr. Brown saying it, because now I, I, what I gather, the story has changed a bit. He's suggesting that it was others who made this suggestion, and that's what's in the book. Again, part of the difficulty is without the book sitting in front of you, me, and everyone else, it's kind of hard to sort of piece all this together. But the two allegations that have come out, which have obviously infuriated both Mr. Fideli and Ms. McLeod for understandable reasons, um, you know, would make the Ontario PCs mad in general and would make a lot of the party supporters mad too, and a lot of Ontarians who may not necessarily have any kinship towards Doug Ford and the current government. Uh, will we see lawsuits out of this, do you think? It's a good question. You know, I, privately, I was talking with people last night about that possibility, which among many other things. But um, I guess I would put it this way. Vic Fideli, the finance minister, has retained legal counsel as of his statement from yesterday. He hasn't directly said whether he's going to sue Mr. Brown or not. I guess he's probably waiting to get a copy of the book before he can make that determination. I know that there are other, a couple of other lawsuits that are potentially in the works just based on little things that sort of dribbled out of the book yesterday. Will we see them? It's possible. Will we see a lot of them? It's kind of hard to say because it's a question of what a politician can or cannot get away with in terms of when he or she is actually sitting in a position of power. For example, federal politicians and provincial politicians are, you know, are protected by privilege for at least a period of time. So what we could see is we could see some early lawsuits just from people on the outside who figure they're going to take their chances no matter what, but that major lawsuits may not occur until Mr. Brown's tenure as Mayor of Brampton are over, and who knows, by that point, after the years have passed, maybe tempers won't be as flaring quite as much. It's hard to say. But again, it's based on what the language of the book is like and what the entire book is like. If it's just little passages here and there, each person has to make that determination themselves. If it's a whole swath of people who've been caught in this web, God knows what can happen. So how do you think the public is going to react to this? Do they look at this as sour grapes, internal party politics, dirty laundry, or could this go somewhere? I think it's a little bit of all of that you've said in the above. I mean, it will also be regarded as inside baseball, too. But, yeah, I, I think people will look at this as just a, a, a long-standing dispute between Patrick Brown and the Ontario PCs, or more directly, people that pre- were linked with him previously when he was the party leader and people that he blames for his downfall. But how will the Ontario public look at it? Um, sideshow, I think, is certainly a possibility. Uh, it depends how much the media decides to play it up. Obviously, there are news organizations like the Toronto Star that have already written big exposés about it, and will certainly do more, so that'll be part of it. As more and more columnists get a hold of the book, they'll start to review it. I certainly will write about it at some point, and we'll come up with our own conclusions one way or the other. But I guess one thing that is kind of interesting is, even more so than how the public will look at it, is how the provincial government is going to handle relationships or their relations with Patrick Brown going forward. Because Brown, as mayor of Brampton, has to go cap in hand to the provincial government, that being Premier Doug Ford and others, to get money for his city. 
And a lot of the people that he has to go to get money from at the city, for the city are actually people that he may or may not have accused in this book, which is going to make it very, very difficult for everyone to sort of deal with one another or to begin with how they're going to actually be able to set up a meeting between Mr. Brown and Mr. Ford in the first place. Does this change the way the PC party approaches things? Obviously, Brown's uh, Brown's allegation in his upcoming book, and again, we haven't seen it yet, no. uh, is that he's accusing uh, Finance Minister Vic Fideli uh, of, of hypocrisy simply because he says that there was um, a female staffer accusing Fideli yes. of inappropriate behavior. Does this right. change party policy inside? I mean, we've seen sort of seen that already. Is this an, Where does this leave the party with its internal politics? Well, I mean, look, before this, and I don't know if I discussed it with you or with others, because I've, I've talked about Brown with various people, um, I suggested that even though obviously there have been some very tense relationships between Patrick Brown and people associated with Doug Ford and Doug Ford directly, um, that they would still try to handle things professionally because Mr. Brown, as the mayor of a fairly large city in Ontario, you know, has to be managed to some degree, and he'll want money for certain programs. The province will have to determine whether these programs make sense or not. But I would figure, I would have figured before all this that Brown and Ford would have met because you have to do it properly, the same way that, say, Doug Ford and John Tory will meet on a regular basis, even though they haven't always necessarily seen eye to eye and ran against one another in 2014 during the Toronto mayoral race. Um, but now with this book in play, it really comes into, well, I, it's creating a wild card that I, I must say I really didn't see, because even in the nature of a tell-all book, which is something I, I and others really don't advise people to write, because unfortunately emotion tends to preclude everything else or supersede everything else on that sort of an odyssey, and it doesn't do you any good in the grand scheme of things. The argument here is that with this book in play, the Ontario PCs, A, they realize they have to deal with Brampton because, you know, they want to obviously provincially maintain some sort of status, win seats and various other things. But the second time, they're going to have to deal with a mayor who not only doesn't dislike them, but in in the case of obviously many many people linked with the Ontario PCs, really has a hate on for them as well, or at least that's what I sort of gather based on the news reports that are out. And once again, not to sound like a, a broken record, maybe the book will present a different uh, spin on it, or maybe it'll be exactly the same thing. So unfortunately, I think once all these people get a hold of a copy of the book, they start parsing through it, they determine you know, what is true, what is false, or what should never have been discussed, it really makes it very difficult for anything to go forward. I mean, you can't basically say to Brampton, well, because we don't like your mayor, you're not getting anything, goodbye. Hmm. But at the same time, I don't know how you have a relationship with them. How can you build any sort of a bridge? Now, the one wild card, if you don't mind me throwing it out, even though he's on another radio station, Mark Tuohy, who used to be Rob Ford's old chief of staff and is actually on a, a Toronto radio station as a host, he suggested on Twitter and made kind of an interesting comment that's where he said this quote-unquote book could actually work to his advantage because if he can't get a meeting and he can't speak with Doug Ford and Brampton is left out, of the, left out in the cold, that's actually going to look like petty partisan politics on the provincial government's side. And while you may or not necessarily agree with it, it's an interesting outside-the-box comment, because 
in the end, somehow or other, Brampton is going to have to be included in the puzzle. But if Patrick Brown is a part of it, how do you do it without it looking petty that you don't give him money, you know, set up a meeting, etc.? And it really, unfortunately, it kind of boxes everybody in. That is really inside baseball. What about, so the relationship between Pat, Patrick Brown and the PC party, it gone over. Ever a part of this again? Ever into the fold again? Well, look, never is a long time, as we know. And a day in the life of politics is the equivalent to between one to five years, depending on what you believe. So anything can change. And obviously, lots of politicians in the past have left either politics in disgrace or, you know, have had an embarrassing scene and somehow made their way back. You know, in one of the worst examples, Marion Barry, the mayor of Washington, is a classic example, a person who was taken down with by a drug sting and a sex sting, and yet somehow he became mayor again. But then you also have an example of Robert Bourassa, the former premier of Quebec, who left in disgrace in the 70s and within about 10 to 11 years became, you know, premier of the province again in sort of a euphoric comeback that nobody foresaw. So anything can potentially happen. But right now, I think it's very simple that if Patrick Brown wanted to run for the Ontario PCs and he actually sent in a note asking this, you know they would be rejected right off the bat. And I think that basically there's going to be a very, very long cooling-off period between both of them. Whether it'll be permanent or not remains to be seen. Hmm. How will this book affect the lawsuit with CTV? That's an interesting question. I guess a lot of it depends on what has been said about CTV in the book, if anything, and how it relates directly to that case. I haven't seen anything really linked to it as of yet. Most of what has been discussed has either been, say, with the former Ontario PC leadership uh, candidates and what they quote-unquote promised Patrick Brown if he stepped out of the race, or some of the allegations that Mr. Brown has made against, as we've talked about, Mr. Fideli, Ms. McLeod, etc. I don't know specifically how it's going to affect the lawsuit. I mean, quite frankly, I, w- I would certainly, if, it was, if there's anything in there, I mean, most people worth their, you know, worth their weight in salt would throw this into the mix and state that, well, Mr. Brown on page da-da-da, paragraph da-da-da, said, and it could work against him quite a bit, or maybe not. Maybe the comments and the paragraphs that have been written about CTV, if anything in the book, relate to exactly what we've discussed or heard about related to this lawsuit. So could it play a role? Absolutely. Will it play a role ultimately? Again, you know, much like everything else in this conversation, we have to wait for the book to come out to see. Uh, considering not much came out of that and out of those allegations, uh, other than him, of course, losing his job, can you see people feeling sorry for this guy? Can you see people thinking he got the rough end of the stick and and maybe this working for him? Well, look, the the reaction on social media has been, I'd say, two-thirds negative, a third positive. But that sort of makes sense when you consider the fact that There have been supporters of Patrick Brown through this whole affair, long after he left as Ontario PC leader and long before he became mayor-elect of Brampton. So I think there's always going to be people who are going to be in his side and claim that there, yes, there was rot in the Ontario PC party, as Vic Fideli famously said, but that the rot included him and others. Well, the majority of people will say that the rot was caused by Patrick Brown and his supporters. I think that overall, in the end, it really just depends on how you look at politics or whether you were active in the Ontario PCs and how you viewed things, 
or what your feelings are, whether someone like a Patrick Brown is a more reputable character than, say, Doug Ford and others, or whether mm. you fear, figure that even if you don't like Doug Ford necessarily, at least he seems to have been you know, a little bit more straightforward than Patrick Brown, or whether you think that Patrick Brown was basically just you know, treated shabbily, and he's just sort of coming back with things that, yes, probably did happen in private, but that most people wouldn't discuss in public. Again, a lot of this just depends. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor. Michael, always thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A Brexit deal in place, not in place? What are the options here? Uh, Is this just making the best of a bad situation? Uh, here's what uh, here's a clip from yesterday uh, from the Associated Press. British Prime Minister Theresa May uh, at town at 10 Downing Street um, has a tough, tough job ahead of her. The Brexit talks are about acting in the national interest. And that means and that means making what I believe to be the right choices, not the easy ones. All right, let's bring in Eves Timbergan, professor, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia, and with us now. Eves, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good morning, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Uh, your thoughts on what is happening now. Is this the best of a bad situation? Uh, well, the deal does represent the, the maximum that Britain can get from the EU within a negotiated framework. And so the, the original problem, of course, is that the Brexiteers oversold the case to the public when they went for the referendum, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, well, they, they went for a pipe dream. They, yeah. they never took into account that it had to be negotiated with the EU, and the EU has a lot of leverage. And so that's not what Brexiteers wanted. Uh, but that's probably the closest to the British national interest under this circumstance. How but it's it, very hard to sell. How <laughs> is that playing in the UK? Is reality finally setting in that this may not be the pipe dream everyone thought it was? Yeah, I think there is dissonance, right? Because if you talk to, to British friends and, and maybe to the public, except for uh, you know some very hard Brexit regions, but to say the majority, they, they are pragmatic. They understand that this is better than a no-deal Brexit. But politically, it's deadly. Uh, because on the conservative side, uh, well, the party is leaking MPs and ministers from cabinet, and uh, there's going to be it's going to be a, a challenge to her uh, leadership of the party uh, tomorrow. Uh, I mean, it's it's deadly in a conservative party. And then if uh, Labour doesn't stand up and and say, well, at least some of Labour would support the deal, then it's going to fail in Parliament. And so it's it's a very difficult situation. Uh, what options d- does anyone have here? You know, we're hearing ministers quit, uh, saying that, that, that it, it's not a fair break, a clean break from the EU. Uh, I mean, who's got a better opportunity? Who's got a better situation? Uh, is it that cut and dry? Yeah, I mean, of course, they, you know, everyone is making a little snippet out of a 537-page deal, right? So th- this is a, a big thing. But you know, like on Ireland, uh, it's kind of, it's a very difficult situation because the EU with Ireland on board will not allow a hard border. So right. They want to keep a deal. But then to keep that deal means separating North Ireland from the rest of Britain, which is a red line for uh, for the conservative Brexiteers. 
And so, and, but there is no middle ground, right? It's A or B. And so we, we, we're heading for, for big fights. <laughs> uh, we're hearing non-confidence votes. We're hearing Theresa May is going to, for government's going to fall. Where would that leave us? Does that put anyone ahead of the game here? Um, yeah. or, is, or is that just politics and giving someone else another kick at the can? Yeah, no, it's currently it's just nasty politics, which is in dissonance with the majority interest of the public, right? So I think this is parties. Essentially what you need is uh, the deal could be supported in the center of the spectrum. So if you had something like you had in France with the remaking of the party system, well, you would have a majority in the middle. But because the party system is the way it is, and you no know, labor will not support a conservative proposal, then it's going to fail in Parliament. I mean, that's the way it looks like. But I don't think anyone is ready to pick up the prime ministership either, because it's, it's exactly a <laughs> who wants that job, Eves? Who, who wants to take her job? spot? Not me. Not <laughs> this is this is a tough job. This is terrible. Uh, so it's a lot of chaos right now, Bruja. Now, what we don't know, I was just reading that as we speak. The prime minister is meeting with Michael Gove, uh, who is a leading Brexiteer who, you know, will push for the re- referendum. Um, and he may be, it's rumored to, at least he's offered the job to, to uh, be the minister in charge of Brexit. If he comes on board and buttresses Theresa May and somehow manages to <laughs> add a few things, so there is a little bit of a hope here. But if that fails, if he comes out of the meeting and says, no thanks, I don't want a job, then, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for the next few days. What happens if they don't hammer something out? What happens if this just comes? I mean, it's virtually been a stalemate for the last couple of years. What happens now? What happens if they can't come up with a deal? Yeah, so that's probably the best deal uh, that's available with EU. So if it doesn't work, if Parliament uh, doesn't vote for it, it votes it down, and there is no quick fix, say, within a month, then we're heading for the no-deal Brexit at the end of March. And uh, suddenly, Britain exits and becomes an outside country, has no trade opening to the EU, uh, becomes like uh, you know, like a country in the rest of the world. And so that would have massive, massive disruption for the British economy. And anticipating that, you would see a fall in the pound that would be very br- brutal. You would see uh, you know, probably uh, lots of problems in the financial market. Lots of uh, companies exiting Britain. I mean, so I don't know what they're thinking, right? The, the Brexiteers, they, they think they can do something that's not possible, that it's a pipe dream, but they're ready to kind of gamble the economy of Britain. Uh, is, there, is there another option? If this continues to be a stalemate and, and doesn't go anywhere, and Britain just ends up as any other country dealing with the EU, how long before they start the process to do some sort of trade deal, which is exactly what they have now? Yeah, except doing a trade deal takes years, right? Yeah. Uh, say a couple of years, and if there is a hard no-deal Brexit at the end of March, the chaos and the pain will be such that there will be no mood for a trade deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and it's not the public interest. The majority of the public doesn't want that kind of chaos, right? So that's interesting. There is a gap here between the game played by a minority within the Conservative Party, which is really going for a hardline direction, and the median position of the public. Uh, so sometimes when there's a gap like this, 
some political entrepreneur shows up and try to bridge the gap. Uh, so who knows? There could be a few uh, a few episodes in the coming weeks and months. Is there any chance of going backwards? Is there any chance of another referendum? I mean, there's there's rumors of that. Uh, if this continues to be a stalemate, does that become more a possibility? Yeah, it's. I mean, everyone discounted it, thinking it's hard legally. You know, it's kind of strange. Uh, but there is more and more voices. All the, I mean, at least at four previous prime ministers, including Tony Blair and Chance, uh, former Prime Minister Brown, and all of the major, John Major, have come up saying we need another referendum. Brown was the latest recently. So who knows, right? There could be a grassroots movement. Or that's interesting. It, it's still a long shot, but the chaos that's looming is such that something interesting could happen. Is it easier to go backwards than it is to go forwards in this case? As you said, I mean, it seems that the options are impossible. Is it easier just to say, never mind and go back? Right. I mean, you see that a few percentage points in the population has shifted in that mood, right? So today, various opinion polls show that there would not be a majority for Brexit, but it's still very divided. It's very close. Um in practice, that is correct. That is, the policy process of going through with Brexit is wrenching. And nobody yet knows how painful it's going to be. It's going to be much worse than they even know now. Uh, it's, it's easy to calculate all the steps going forward. But, you know, when it, was, when it went for a referendum, no one could calculate this. No one anticipated all the complexities of a policy divorce, um, wow. This being said, politically, going backward is nearly impossible as well, right? So it's very, very hard. And even legally, the hmm. only legal way would be a second referendum uh, if they can, if it's seen as acceptable. Now, politically, the Conservative Party cannot survive uh, going backward. They would explode, right? right. Parties. It sounds like uh, they're going to explode anyway, though. Right. I mean, you know, currently it's a bit like the Tea Party in the U.S. before, the Freedom Caucus. Yeah. The, major, the, the hardcore group of 70s holding the country hostage and the rest of the party hostage. Is there room for discussion uh, in regard to how this all got started? I mean, we're talking about trade deals. We're talking about business, industry, free movement of people, goods, that sort of thing. But a lot of this came down to Brussels just having too much control over the UK. Are we any farther ahead with that discussion? Is there is there is there a key there? Um, now, the trick with this is that it's mostly not the case, right? It's mostly an argument that sells with voters. So it's not an it's not an accurate argument then, right? It's not. I mean, factually, it's not. It's not really true. Uh, there's only a handful of policy arenas where Brussels has real power. One is trade, because trade policy is unified. But it, in general, it worked for the UK. And in fact, the UK drove most of that process uh, toward the liberal uh, direction that went beyond what continental Europeans wanted. The UK managed to push Europe toward trade and liberalism. Um, the, the issue with the public is upset mostly because of issues of globalization and inequality. And that's not a Brussels problem. That's more British problem or globalization problem. Then they're upset about uh, declining public services. And that's a British problem, not an EU related problem. 
Uh, it's not the case in every European country. And then there was an immigration problem. And there, of course, the EU has responsibility by, in a way, uh, encouraging a process that went beyond what the British voters were ready to accept. Uh, but, you know, undoing the entire shell that was working for the economy of Britain, which led to a lot of economy and business coming to Britain, is not, is very costly. So the British people did not realize how much they were gaining because you take it for granted. What mm. you gain, you take for granted and you pinpoint a couple things you're upset with. Uh, but now reality is kind of coming close, right? So the UK has given up the golden goose right here. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember mm. in the 60s, the UK grew 3% a year. Continental Europe under the European Common Market grew 5% a year. And for 15 years, the UK was desperate to join the European market. They, they asked three times and the goal blocked it and blocked it. said, not over, over my dead body. They finally made it in the mid-70s. By that point, Britain had fallen behind, way behind France and way behind Germany. They were so behind, right? Um, and so, you know, as part of the EU, Britain has benefited quite a bit, although has not done enough domestic adjustment to make sure inequality doesn't rise. You know, there's too much uh, power for London, too much economy in London. For mm. How do you think history is going to view this 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Um, well, much depends on what else goes on in the world <laughs> in terms of history. Hmm. The bi- one variable, of course, is the whole thing around Trump and whether he's going to take us into the collapse of the world trade system or the world economy. If we have another Great Depression, Brexit is a footnote, right? It will not appear yeah. as prominent. Uh, also, if the EU has a big problem with the euro, they haven't yet found the governance to uh, weather a, a future euro crisis, uh, say with Italy. So if the euro or the EU is a major problem, then again, Brexit will appear as a, as a good, uh, you know, small footnote. But if the euro holds together, if Trump mostly blusters but doesn't destroy the world economy, then Brexit uh, takes its full force and then it will appear essentially as something that was sold by very ambitious politicians in a complete lack of reality. They were dishonest with voters. They never gave credible options to voters. And then now that reality is coming, uh, they they don't know how to explain it to voters. So they blame it all on Theresa May. Um, and so there was a lot of dishonesty and it's not managed well. right? It's, it's a, and the, the Conservative Party will suffer. How do you think uh, citizens in the UK feel about the referendum, uh, about choosing that route in order to make this decision? A, a second referendum, you mean? Or even the first. I mean, many, first, right? many thought that this was, uh, it, it was amazing because the, the, the mood before the vote was very different than the mood after the vote. It's almost as if people didn't think it was going to happen. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Of, now, Britain is more divided after the referendum yeah. in a way similar to the U.S. And so here you have really different clusters of opinions. Uh, in uh, you know traditional uh, countryside England, there are still a lot of people who stand by that vote and who think you know they never liked the EU. And it, there's also an issue of culture and identity. Yeah. So it's not about economy and policy. It's really about what you believe in, your identity. So they stand by the vote. They don't move. They you know they think they should, you know Britain should be fully sovereign. Uh, but for those who were in the middle, who hesitated, or young people who didn't vote, or 
there is a, a sense of tragedy, right? I see a lot of young British people, who, you know, some of them come to Canada, they, they have a sense of self-inflicted tragedy. What can the UK and the rest of the world learn from this exercise? Um, well, so getting this, at least two things. First, getting into something as big as the EU, which is half an international institution and half a process of state building to solve, you know, when you're a small fragmented country facing a, a dangerous world. Well, that process is an enormous process. And so it has to somehow get, uh, you know, we have to find a way with democracy to build support and adhesion from the public uh, beforehand so that then when some hardship comes in, um, there is a way to correct, to do minor adjustment without going through, uh, you know, all or nothing approach. Let's just get out. Something as big as getting out of the EU after 40 years cannot be uh, honestly decided on a one vote based on wrong information on both sides, actually. There should be a much deeper deliberative process going over years with you no know, quality deliberation, uh, hearing all kinds of uh, you know, citizens and groups. Somehow, yeah, the one-time referendum for something that decides the life and death of your economy and your society, hmm. it looks like it's a blunt instrument that didn't work. <laughs> That's for sure. Eves Timbergan has been with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You're thinking about, you know, you're, a, you're a, a, an environmentally conscious person. You're taking the Sobe bikes. You're not driving your car. You're, but, you know, you're plugged in. You're on your device all the time. You've got the latest and greatest technology right there at your fingertips every couple of years, you know. The way my dad used to buy a car in the old days, people are like buying devices. Every couple of years, you need the latest and greatest. Uh, battery life, slowing down. Mine's a year or two, a couple of years old. I'm in the same sort of scenario. It's like, what the hell's happened to my phone? It used to be lickety split. Now uh, the battery is lucky. I'm lucky if it lasts throughout the whole day. Slowing down? What's going on? Well, move to a new phone then, sir. Well, it's helping the the sector market, but what's it doing to the environment? And in a new research paper, McMaster Associate Professor concluded that this sector is in the midst of an explosion in its carbon footprint. Who would have thunk just, you know, social media-ing with all of your friends is hard on the environment? Let's bring in Lafitte Belk here, Associate Professor at McMaster University and on the line with us now. Uh, Lafitte, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. So talk about this study and what you have found out and what people may not realize about their devices. Well, uh, like you put, you put it really well, uh, smartphones have become a major part of our lives. And in fact, what we find in our study that smartphones in 2010... Uh, we're going to move from 4% of their total contribution to the ICT world. ICT is uh, Information and Communication Technologies, which includes all the devices like PCs, notebooks, displays, tablets, and the infrastructure side, which is data centers and communication networks. 
And what we found that in 2010, smartphones uh, made up about 4% of the total universe of ICT. Desktops were about 18%. Notebooks or laptops, 8%. Displays, 9%. And in 2020, we projected that smartphones will be the devices that have the biggest contribution to the environment among desktops, notebooks, and displays, with 11% total. However, uh, what's interesting is that data centers, which uh, will expect to make up about 45% of the total contribution of ICT to uh, the global to the the the, the 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 carbon footprint of total ICT. 45% of that is going to come from data centers and 24% from communication networks for a total of 79%. So one might think, okay, smartphones is only 11%, so it's not a big deal. <clears throat> well, it is a big deal when you consider that smartphones are the ones who are causing the explosive growth in data centers and communication networks because we've transitioned since the advent of smartphones, we've transitioned to mobile, what's called the age of mobile computing, where most of our computing is happening on smartphones, most of our socializing through the social networks is happening on smartphones, and even most of our entertainment, such as even movies, uh, uh, watching movies, a lot of our kids and even adults are watching their Netflix movies and YouTubes, not on a TV, not in the movie theaters, but on smartphones as well. And considering that for each megabyte that your smartphone generates in terms of data, there's another five megabytes of overhead that's generated by the communication networks and the data centers, mm. then you can imagine how smartphones are essentially taking us to a whole new level of, uh, of data traffic and that requires this huge infrastructures of data centers, communication networks, uh, which are essentially this humongous, very power-hungry, very uh, <clears throat> environmentally unfriendly, 24-7, 365 days a year, running nonstop. And you predict by 2040 that the, the, the global carbon emission from production of smartphones will be half of what it is for a transportation sector. Is that correct? Not the smartphones. The total ICT, which is total the information amount. communication technologies, okay. right. Uh, so we're essentially forecasted that uh, today or 20, uh, 2007, the ICT carbon footprint, again, ICT is all the uh, computer yeah. devices and data center, uh, was about 1.5% of the global carbon footprint. <clears throat> and by 2040, it's going to be about 14% of the global carbon footprint, which uh, in the U.S., transportation, uh, transportation makes up 28%. But on a worldwide basis, uh, the relative contribution of transportation is 14%. So on a global scale, uh, everything kept constant. The ICT contribution will be equal to the global contribution of transportation. Are developers aware of this, and, and what will happen if all of a sudden this uh, extremely progressive, cutting-edge technology all, all of a sudden gets branded as being socially irresponsible in some way? I mean, are we going to see blue bins for phones now? <laughs> if only it was that simple, Scott. Uh, the, uh, the recycling of, uh, of smartphones is a problem. And you're right. Only, uh, we estimate that only 1% of smartphones today are fully recycled. 
Uh, the problem is that even when they're recycled, they're not recycled for their, for their full value. Uh, it's like also uh, automobile recycling. The body of an automobile, when it gets recycled, doesn't go into making a new car. It goes into mostly into speed bumps. It's called downcycling. So uh, the, what needs to happen is that the manufacturers need to redesign their smartphones so that when they, when they reach their end of life, they can be easily recycled for full value so that they can reuse the gold, the rare earth elements, and a lot of the expensive components uh, that make up uh, not only the price, but make up the big carbon footprint of those smartphones. Like we've shown also in our study, that the usage, the energy usage of your smartphone makes up only 5 to 10% of the actual environmental footprint of the smartphone. The other 90% comes from the mining of the gold and the rare earth elements and the manufacturing process itself. We all know so, that... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So for comparison uh, purposes, um, a, a rich gold mine has about 4 to 8 grams per ton. A PC or a laptop has about 25 to 30 grams per ton. Smartphones have about 300 to 400 grams per ton. That just gives you an idea of uh, how expensive it is to mine those elements and how, of course, uh, environmentally uh, impactful they are. With information like this, how is this going to change the industry? Are we creating a new industry in how to recycle these? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, we make a uh, few recommendations uh, in our paper, which I think uh, we insist have to be taken holistically in the sense that they have to be really integrated. Some of them are managerial and some of them are policy recommendations. On the, on the policy side, we recommend strongly that data centers have to go on 100% renewable energies. No compromise, no tolerance there, because those are essentially huge facilities. They're like 70% of the energy that goes in data centers is for cooling. And uh, solar energy and renewable energy has become now cost-effective enough to compete with fossil fuel. And those data centers tend to be in non-urban sites, so there is a lot of real estate to have solar farm and wind farms and so on. So there should be no compromise there and no tolerance for any data centers to run on fossil fuels going forward. The managerial recommendations that we make is that for manufacturers to go into more of a cyclical manufacturing process or what's called the, the closed-loop economy, where they have to design their phones so that they can be fully recyclable for full value so they don't have to go and dig out for more gold and rare earth elements, 90% of which come from China anyway, and be able to now extend reduce the, uh, the footprint of, those, the, of the production of those smartphones. The third aspect has to do, to do with consumers, essentially, is to hold on their phones a lot more than two years. Like you pointed out in your introduction, we found that tablets, for example, which use exactly the same technology and the same software, just uh, only difference is the form factor, have a life, uh, shelf life of about seven years. And nobody seems to be complaining that their battery is now dying in the middle of the day, that the software is too slow, and so on. And this suggests something that's anecdotal that's been discussed a lot. We don't have any data. That, in fact, the smartphones are like the PCs designed to slow down after about a year and a half or two to encourage you now that, oh, it's time now to switch to an upgrade and upgrade my model because the old model doesn't work for me anymore. 
And there is really no technology limitation. I mean, the processors that we have in our iPhones today are more powerful than the IBM mainframe processors in the 70s. So there is simply no limitation. Now, and there is the business model that needs also to change. The business model today is such that the communication uh, telecoms are trying to hook you with a new upgrade so that they can, again, hook you for another two years so you don't go to their competitors mm. to maintain their market share. And, of course, that is driving and fueling uh, the new upgrades and the new manufacturing and the, and the growth in smartphones as well. We'd have but to guess, see. We'd have to see a great change in how companies like Apple market these things, who depend on people lining up in advance with the hype to to get them. I mean, that whole that whole uh, philosophy has to change. That's right. And I, the the good news for those companies is that they don't have to lose money. I mean, there are other business models in which they can continue to improve the technology without having to have this ridiculous amount of waste in terms of smartphones and this huge impact. There are, there are other business models where you could imagine, for example, for $50 a month uh, for the next three or four years, you get to upgrade to the latest models as long as you return your old model hmm. so that you're still taking advantage of the latest technologies. Apple gets to make new models that improve the functionality, but we don't have that huge impact on the uh, on the on, on the uh, on the carbon footprint and the climate change and we're still kind of now more into a service model rather than an ownership model there are companies like interface carpet who have done that very successfully where they don't sell their carpet anymore they lease it and mm-hmm. then they bring it back recycle it for full value and give their customer another uh, another carpet so the customers don't have to sacrifice their in their their experience and the enjoyment of the latest technologies uh, companies don't have to sacrifice their revenues or their profit margin uh, but we but we have to redesign the way we are building technology and we are monetizing it and commercializing it and that's really the key challenge here uh, and again it's it's a mindset like you pointed out that needs to change but not necessarily a compromise or a downgrade of our lifestyle or of our uh, or the revenues or the economy. Lotfi Belk here has been with us, Associate Professor McMaster University, a new research paper in which uh, they're concluding that this sector, uh, smartphones, is having quite an effect on the carbon footprint of the planet. Buying a new phone every couple of years is not helping. Lotfi, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.